Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Today is July 12th, 2022. This is Riel reporting. Thank you everyone so, so much for watching and or listening. Today's episode is number 231 in Generation Z's Kraken segment. Our lineup today will consist of about 45 articles and is going to be broken down in the categories of, first up, we're looking at space slash aliens slash nature. Uh, then next up, it's going to be uh, geopolitics, focusing heavily on Europe and the various world orders, whether it's the West or the East, old or the new, World Economic Forum, United Nations, BRICS, etc. cetera. Uh, then we'll be going into the necessary COVID section, followed by three Canadian reports, and we will finish up with a bonus segment that I've coined on the Patreon side, uh, Generation Z slash Patreon, with uh, the Dose of Reality series where I have a segment called Think Globally, Act Locally. In this segment, on our public side for today, we'll be featuring uh, Sri Lanka, and we'll be using Sri Lanka as a case study so that we can understand the global octopus, or colloquially known as the Kraken, and understand how its tentacles have infiltrated sovereign states worldwide. Without further ado, and as a beloved community member Mason suggested, let's dissect the Kraken. So I'm going to just share my screen here. And so that you can see in real time uh, what I will be looking at. And so the first story today is from Russia today, from July 9th. UFO whistleblowers offered protections. So this is from the GOP-backed amendment, which would offer whistleblower-like safeguards for UFO leakers. Legislation making its way through the U.S. Congress will grant immunity to government employees who leak information about unidentified aerial phenomena, commonly known as UFOs, seeking to create a formal process for such disclosures. Now, of course, our Generation Z audience, you know, we are all very familiar with this. However, it is interesting to see the developments from that, uh, uh, the U.S. Congress hearing. Now, uh, very interesting to note that uh, this amendment would establish a process within the government for reporting UAPs and provide whistleblower-like protections, says Jordan Dunn, a spokesman for Gallagher, who told the War Zone this. Uh, the measure proposes a secure system for receiving reports about any event relating to unidentified aerial phenomena, as well as any government programs or activities linked to the mysterious sightings. However, while the amendment seeks to protect leakers, it also notes that the system would, quote, serve as a mechanism to prevent unauthorized public reporting. Okay, uh, so we're just going to leave that there. And unfortunately, that was one of the things that uh, the, the spectators of this in the UFO field were a little concerned about. So we will see where that goes. But on to the next story, uh, also from Russia Today. From July 5th, NASA loses touch with the moon probe. The U.S. Space Agency hopes to reestablish contact with the capstone mission. Now, without reading more into the details of this, could this have somehow been correlated with the CERN activation that was occurring on that same day? Interesting. 
But so the article says the probe testing an orbital approach for the Artemis moon program experienced a communication problem within a day of leaving the low Earth orbit. The U.S. Space Agency said on Tuesday, NASA engineers are hopeful they can fix whatever caused the capstone probe to lose contact and rescue the mission considered crucial for returning to the moon. Now, uh, we're not going to go too much into this. Um, just because any time that you spend a lot of time analyzing what NASA says, it you, we have to wonder if it's kind of a waste of thought or waste of breath. Not that it is a waste, but you know, never a straight answer. Never a straight answer, NASA, as they say. So on to the next one. Uh, here we have RT News again, also from July fifth. China reacts to the U.S. moon takeover claims. The foreign ministry spokesman has accused NASA's administrator of an irresponsible smear. Beijing has rejected claims by the U.S. space chief that China might be contemplating a takeover of the moon as part of its military space program and accused Washington of seeking to turn space into a war-fighting domain. Interesting. Yeah, I've uh, been wondering actually about how China's uh, missions to the moon would perhaps usurp the established consensus of what the moon is and what we have found and or the lack of returning to the moon. It's interesting to monitor how China will continue to interact with NASA relating uh, moon topics. Next up, we're going to CBC from Canada, and this is about the James Webb Telescope from July 12th today. James Webb Telescope captures cosmic cliff dancing galaxies. NASA has now released five images from the powerful $10 billion U.S. telescope. So for those that are listening, uh, this is going to be a visual article because we're looking at actual images from the James Webb Telescope. Qu images, quote unquote. Uh, as we see the first one up here in that headline, that is that is beautiful for sure. Uh, First picture is a Southern Ring Nebula. And for those that have watched the videos on the public side or the Patreon side, uh, we have looked at images like this from space. We've analyzed them. We looked at their esoteric and occult significance, how these symbols reoccur through nature, specifically the spirals and the rings. So very interesting. Um, next up is the Carina Nebula. That is also a very beautiful picture. Makes me think of those uh, pillars in the, there's a certain religion that gives you pamphlets. Uh, I don't, I can't quite recall the name of it now, but these look very similar to those photos. Then there's Stefan's Quintet, also very beautiful. Wow, uh, Wasp 96B, okay. Very interesting. So we're not going to go into the details of what the James Webb Telescope is here, but this was actually, now we're looking at the first picture that Joe Biden unveiled from the James Webb Telescope. And honestly, it looks like there's something going on there. I'm not going to do too much of a dissecting of it, but if you are curious, please comment and I can share my thoughts on what we are actually looking at and what this really means. But it kind of looks like we're, we're seeing something similar to Tabitha's star, if our audience is familiar with that. But anyway, good job, James Webb Telescope. Uh, so next here, we are going to CTV News, uh, the Winnipeg, 
And this is actually where I am doing the recording from. So I like to browse our local news stories. Uh, University of Manitoba astrophysics grad student pinpoints particles in, quote, space manatee. So we're looking at x-rays of varying strength appear as different colors in this image of the space manatee. Interesting. A University of Manitoba grad student has helped confirm theories about an unusually shaped object in space more than 18,000 light years away. Now this article also grabbed my attention because we have the 1-8 followed by the three zeros on this channel. We're always uh, finding those numbers, the numerical significance. The, whether it's 108, 18.0 something, um, 18,000 for whatever reason, it's 1.8 with zeros and we're finding those patterns. But yeah, interesting. Uh, the discovery challenges the theory of particle acceleration and points to injection and re-energization of the particle jets at large distances, nearly 100 light years away from the black hole. Okay, well, so we have the student uh, McIntyre who, well, let's let's refocus here. The Manatee Nebula is named such because astronomers who photographed it in 2013 thought it looked just like the aquatic mammal known for frequenting Florida waters. They noticed that when they shade, shaded this nice image in blue, the shape of the nebula looked like a manatee laying on its back, said uh, Burden McIntyre, a graduate student who has spent the past three years studying the phenomenon. That's how it rose to fame. Okay, well, interesting, cute name. And I wonder what we're really looking at. Uh, if anybody has any thoughts or comments, please uh, fill up our comment section in the YouTube uh, video. Next up, so that was kind of our space category. Now we're going more into, you know, nature and just general, general science-y kind of things. This is from July 11th. Guidelines on value of nature agreed among 139 countries. Yes, the headline says guidelines on the value of nature agreed among 139 countries. And honestly, this just makes me laugh. Countries have approved the first comprehensive guidelines for judging the value of nature following four years of intense debate, officials said Monday. The report was endorsed by 139 countries, including the U.S., Russia, China, France, the U.K., and Germany, that are members of the United Nations-backed Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, or IPBES. Okay, well, we're not going to tell you too much about what they're uh, talking about, um, because that's going to be its own doozy of a topic. but. For the record, I do have right here the IPBS, IPBES Secretariat um, from July 11th. Uh, this uh, article was issued by them, and this is about the decisions based on narrow set of market values of nature underpin the global biodiversity crisis. So I wonder, how do they value nature? Um, you know, hopefully that uh, we're able to live in harmony with nature and that they realize that man and nature is all one and we are not on a separate pedestal and we have to live in harmony with, with all of it. Or maybe they've discovered that everything is an illusion, but they probably wouldn't be doing that in this report. Anyway, on to the next one. Uh, our final 
story about uh, science-y related topics is from the Daily Mail uh, from July 12th, also from today. Sex is not limited to male or female from new guidance issued by the World Health Organization, which is dismissing alleged basic biology, according to the Daily Mail. Uh, so uh, sex is not limited to being male or female, says the World Health Organization in its new guidance. Um, interesting. Well, we're not going to go deeper into that here. Um, that's not really a cracking crack subject to dive into, but interesting, and we will see where that goes. We definitely have a lot of thoughts about how this ties into a lot of other things, but we're just going to leave that there. Okay, so next up, we're going, this is a doozy of a section uh, focusing on the geopolitical side of things from all the different aspects of the various orders. New order, old order, BRICS alliance, Western alliance, etc. And the first article we're looking at, the European Union to build new top secret bunker. This is from RT News. So the leader's phones, watches, and hearing aids will be banned from the supposedly spy-proof dugout. The European Union is spending 8 million euros to build a secure bunker in Brussels, in Brussels, where leaders can meet in secrecy, EU Observer reported on Friday. The chamber will be insulated against electronic interference, and all gadgets will be banned from entering, with the news site claiming that such measures are necessary against Russian or other eavesdroppers. Well, so there's a few different angles to this. Um, one is the emergency preparedness uh, <laughs> uh, topic that seems to be following the uh, pandemic emergency, the climate emergency, nuclear threat, alien threat. But also another angle to this is the interesting reality of the NSA PRISM program, where we learned that the United States was actually spying on European Union leaders. And I don't have the articles to reference that, but I'm sure that many of our audience will remember when that happened, as we see here. Uh, spying takes place between allies as often as adversaries, with the United States famously bugging a reported 122 world leaders circa 2014. Extensive surveillance was carried out by carried out by the U.S. National Security Agency on high-level officials in both France and Germany, according to documents released by WikiLeaks. As well, Israel and China have also been accused of conducting surveillance operations in Brussels. And the EU has pressed Belgium for years to tighten up its espionage laws, which allow spying to go unpunished in many cases. Interesting. Well, they've got their justifications. It's a dual-use story for sure, and a dual-use thing to create a new super secret bunker, which isn't so secret. Next up, we're sticking with RT News. As you can see, the next five or six stories are all going to be from RT. Just happens that they go into the stories that a lot of Western outlets don't cover. And this is from July 5th. Uh, Germans forced to ration hot water. A housing cooperative in Saxony is restricting the use of hot water by residents. 
um, according to the notice, the hot, hot water will no longer be available for the 600 apartments of the cooperative around the clock, but only intermittently. Tenants will be able to take hot showers between 4 to 8 a.m., 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., and 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. During the night and in between those times, cold water will run from the taps. So I just wonder, uh, how are those sanctions working out for the people of Germany? The sanctions against Russia, which as this article underneath says, that a complete cessation of Russian gas flows would make it extremely difficult for Germany to increase gas storage levels to be desired to the desired 90% by the time winter arrives. The current level reportedly stands at 61%. Right, well, as we say so often on this channel, it's, it's only the innocent civilians that suffer. Uh, the elites pulling the strings behind the scenes, you know, as we just looked at, are building their own bunkers for themselves. Okay, and following that same uh, tangent of a story, EU power prices hit an all-time high. This is from July 5th. Electric electricity prices have quadrupled due to soaring gas costs, the Financial Times report. Electricity prices in Europe have hit their highest level on record, the Financial Times reported on Tuesday, citing the rising cost of natural gas amid the uncertainty over Russian supplies. Right, so just same kind of question. How are those sanctions working out? Just, yeah. Okay, uh, next up. Germany gives Ukraine advice on Nazi collaborator, national hero. So Kiev should join a Holocaust remembrance group to discuss Bandera's role in ethnic cleansing, an anti-Semitism official has said. Germany has tacitly criticized Ukraine for the apologism of Nazi collaborator Stefan Stepan Bandera, advocated by Kiev's ambassador. The country should join the Berlin-based International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, where Bandera's role in ethnic cleansings can be discussed, German anti-Semitism commissioner Felix Klein said on Monday. Okay, uh, we're gonna stop with this article there, but just wanting to bring in the ties to Canada's involvement with this, where we know that the finance minister, Christia Freeland, her great-grandfather, it's either her grandfather or great-grandfather was a Nazi collaborator. So, I wonder, is there going to be apologies issued on behalf of the Canadian government? We'll see. Next up, uh, we have Ukrainian. Oh, so the headline is Nazi scandal, Ukrainian envoy to leave Germany. Now, this is from July 4th. Kiev reportedly plans to recall its outspoken ambassador to Germany. So Kiev's strident ambassador to Berlin, Andrei Melnik, might be about to leave Germany to potentially take a new post within the Ukrainian foreign ministry, German tabloid Bild reported on Monday, citing an unnamed Ukrainian official. Melnik has, re has recently found himself at the center of yet another scandal after defending Nazi collaborator and Ukrainian national hero Stepan Bandera in an interview. Okay, it, it does get very complicated and interesting when we look at what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And you know, maybe we will do a whole series uh, talking about the different factions involved and, and not just the global octopus side of things, but the actual on the ground factions and breaking up and, and helping us understand 
how all these different chess pieces are in place going from before, like at, at for sure looking at 2014, uh, but before that as well, and just who is really receiving the funds in Ukraine? Who who is uh, like what is Russia really doing over there? If you've noticed, I've I've tried to stay away from reporting. Oh, Russia takes over this place. Oh, Ukraine does this, because you know we're. It, it almost is a little pointless to just be caught up in that side of things because that is to me like really just just hearsay, and we would have to be reporting on both sides of every single story, in my opinion. So as you see, I'm not really giving you the details of what is going on in that conflict. Um, but if you have uh, specific questions or comments, please feel free to, to lay them out and you know we'll get back to you and, and try to engage and interact. And maybe I've got to throw in some more perspectives from one side just to balance the scales, but uh, please let me know how I'm doing with all of this. As we continue here, this is also, so this is from July 4th. <laughs> uh, German chancellor predicts how world will look in 2050. Olaf Scholz says a multipolar world will emerge with many influential countries pursuing their own interests. The article says the world in 2050 will be multipolar with many influential countries, including Russia, pursuing their own interests. So the big task for the West is to Make this work, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said on Sunday. Interesting. So make this work, where he was commenting on the recent NATO summit, which identified China as a threat. I mean, no real surprise there. Um, Scholz also stressed that NATO members are, democracy, are democracies and therefore are not aggressive to the rest of the world, but simply working quote, for a world where aggression is not working, adding that democracies remain, quote, very strong because they are supported by the people. Well, we could say a lot about that. And, oh, well, it is interesting. We'll just go down here that uh, German newspaper Allgemeine Zeitung recently reported that China and Russia want the BRICS group of nations to become counterweight to the Western dominated group of seven. So if uh, our audience has watched our Patreon content, yes, uh, I have gone deep into the BRICS situation and the world orders, the financial institutions, the geopolitical side of things. And it's interesting to see how very surface level the mainstream news is talking about this. We're, we're finally seeing more and more uh, mentions of this, but it's still very surface level and to the average Canadian viewer, they're probably not even aware that the BRICS is even the BRICS alliance is even a thing. I'm curious to see how the average Russian uh, viewer would be aware of what's going on. But if you're from that part of the world, please leave a comment and let us know. But so next up, and you'll see that I put these in succession for a reason. This is from July 10th. The date rape drug scandal rocks German chancellor's party. Multiple women felt dizzy after a summer party hosted by Germany's social Democrats. Berlin police have launched an investigation after at least nine women reported feeling unwell following an, an invite only event hosted by the parliamentary group of Chancellor Olaf Scholz party on Wednesday. That's not a good look. I'm sorry to say, but that is not a good look. 
The official probe was first initiated after a 21-year-old woman had no memory of the event the next day, even though she says she didn't drink any alcohol. She went to a hospital and filed a complaint with police still awaiting the results of her blood test for possible toxic substances. Now, of course, this is very, very disturbing. We're not going to go any deeper into this, but I'm sure that we will be going, we'll be covering this on the Patreon side because it's probably a little too sensitive to be talking about so publicly on, on YouTube. Next up. Okay, so uh, this actually, I, I would have liked to have had this uh, with the science and nature side of the segment, but forgive me, this is just a little out of order here. But Mexico leader to end daylight savings to keep God's clock. Pretty self-explanatory story. Mexico's president submitted a bill Tuesday to end daylight saving time, putting an end to the practice of changing clocks twice a year. I mean, just like, what is time anyway? But interesting to see. And yeah, that's, that's about that. Good job, Mexico. Hope you get it done. Okay, so we're continuing with our geopolitical uh, stretch um, from Al Jazeera. European Parliament adopts landmark laws for internet platforms. The new rules will improve internet consumer protection and supervision of online platforms. This is from July 5th. The European Parliament has adopted landmark laws that will improve internet consumer protection and supervision of online platforms. The Digital Services Act passed with 539 votes in favor, 54 against, and 30 abstentions. Okay, so they really liked this law. But now what does it actually mean? What, do, what, what will they actually accomplish by doing this? So it means, according to this article, that companies must moderate their platforms for harmful content like COVID-19 disinformation and introduce protocols to block the spread of dangerous material during crises like the pandemic. Yeah, you can tell that that's a bit of an exasperated sigh. And it also is talking about targeted ads, which sure, okay, nice. But really the moderating platforms for harmful content like COVID-19 disinformation, that is a troublesome one. We're experiencing legislation on the horizon here in Canada as well. And it doesn't bode well for people that want to keep free speech and general information available. It's very good for those that want to control what you think, though. Which I guess is why all these politicians voted so heavily for it. Next up, we're looking at a CBC article. Now, this is from July 10th. Refurbishing Buckingham Palace helps push royal spending up 17%, which cuts into reserves. And this is under the category of the royal fascinator. So CBC has its own specific category of uh, royal family news articles. Now, remember, before I go into this, remember how Canadians, it was from last report that I did, we looked at how Canadians actually would prefer not to swear an oath to the queen. There's a majority of Canadians that participated in that survey. So just keep that in mind here. Now, royal finance is under scrutiny with annual release of the sovereign grant report. What is a sovereign? What is a grant? 
this is a lot of fun to dive into what these words really mean. And when you look into the law, the legal system we're living in and, and all that, that's a whole deep down rabbit hole, but we're not doing that today. We're just looking at these articles. Uh, so this article says that it's, it focus on the royal family's finances was sparked in part by the annual release of the report on the sovereign grant, the British taxpayer funded payment made to the family each year. It comes from a percentage of the profits made by the crown estate, the independent commercial business that manages property owned by the crown corporately, which is not the queen personally, and it covers spending on official travel and duties, property maintenance and operating costs for the queen's household. The sovereign grant came in at 86.3 million pounds for the 2021 to 2022 year, according to the report. But total spending for the year was at 102.4 million pounds, an increase of 17% over the previous year, which spurred in a large part by the 10-year refurbishment project going on at Buckingham Palace. Okay, so let's just make a connection between the refurbishment project at Buckingham Palace, the secret EU bunker that they're going to be building. And keep that in mind because we've got one more article later on in the segment that is also going to be talking about some potential emergency preparedness um, planning that the elites are doing at the moment. But of course, this funding that we're talking about here with the Buckingham Palace is taxpayer money. Now, whether you support taxes or not, you know, the average person probably does, but when you really start to think about where your taxes go, where does the money go? What is going on? <laughs> but yeah, anyway, on to the next one, because this is just you know, uh, a little, a little silly, but just keep in mind about the refurbishment of the Buckingham Palace and what could they be doing there? Okay, so uh, this is focusing on what's going on in the United Kingdom right now. You know, we looked at that and as a secretary to the Royal Buckingham Palace, now we're looking at the politics side of things. The headline says, ex-minister Michael Gove dismisses criticism of him as a snake. Former cabinet minister Michael Gove has brushed off accusations from a Downing Street source who last week described him as a, quote, snake. <laughs> okay, so Mr. Gove, who was sacked as leveling up secretary for urging the PM to go, told the BBC's Chris Mason he was not a snake, but a regular guy. He said he remained an admirer of Boris himself and hadn't given the insult a second's thought. Quote, ultimately, all sorts of spicy, salacious things are said. You just have to put that one to... You just have to put that to one side. I just want to draw our attention to the uh, use of the term snake and how just going off the deep end a little bit here, but I'm sure as a Gen Z, uh, this is the Gen Z audience, you're going to appreciate it. Uh, in the cosmic hierarchy of things, according to some, the snakes are that the serpent is actually superior to the reptiles. So just keep that in mind when we see this metaphor. And, you know, isn't that exactly what somebody who's a reptile would say is that they're, to quote, a regular guy? 
and of course, I say this facetiously, I'm joking around, but there is always truth in things that we say. So on to the next one. Oh, well, my tab just crashed. So let's see if it can be restored. And thank you, it did restore. So the article is Sajid Javid pulls out of conservative leadership race. Okay, so eight candidates are left in the race to lead the Conservative Party of the United Kingdom and become the next Prime Minister after former Health Secretary Sajid Javid pulls out of the contest. To stay in the, ra to stay in the race, leadership hopefuls had to get support of at least 20 Tory MPs by Tuesday evening. And this was posted today. This is uh, 14 minutes ago from the time that I looked at it. So this has been updated, but this is from today, uh, July 12th. And this is just our uh, attempt at following up with uh, Boris Johnson having resigned, 42 other members resigned. And so they will vote and determine who will be the new leader of the United Kingdom, but it will not be the former health secretary. Okay, and here we're going with, an, so this is also one of the bigger news stories that have gone around the world in the past week, uh, is that the Japanese police chief acknowledges problems with our security after Shinzo Abe's assassination. So the hearse carrying former PM's body arrives in Tokyo after his, after his shooting death in Nara. Now, this was one of the glaring questions that I had from the whole situation is wondering, what happened to the security? And here we have it. Uh, so a top police official on Saturday acknowledged possible security lapses that allowed an assassin to shoot former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe while he was addressing a campaign rally, raising questions, how could the attacker get so close behind him? So this is a very fascinating, multi-pronged, four, five-dimensional chess move with the assassination of former Prime Minister of Japan. Uh, uh, you could look at, well, I'm not looking at the article right now, but there are many articles that have given deep details of the situation. And uh, basically, the shooter claims that he, well, that he was a former Navy officer. So right there, we can kind of raise some red flags about potential MK Ultra. Um, also, when you look at the election in Japan happened right after the shooting and the current parties won by quite the landslide and they have specific platforms and policies that they're trying to push. So there's a lot of reasons why this event happened when it did. And then you also want to look at the policies that Shinzo Abe was supporting during the pandemic and certain remedies that Japan was allowing their people to take, which has potentially reduced further waves in the pandemic. So it could have been retaliation. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of different things that we could go into, but just, just throwing some ideas out there. And remember that all there, there's just so much going on in the geopolitical realm that and that's a very interesting story, especially when we tie into CERN activating uh, the Georgia Guidestones being shut down, uh, being demolished. This is a very energetic time that we're going through right now.
and as well as looking at the UK Prime Minister resigning. There's a lot. So we're continuing on with our geopolitical stuff here. And this is from Al Jazeera. Global population to hit 8 billion, but the growth is slowing, says the UN. The UN says the rise in population underlines the need to address issues such as the climate crisis. So the global population is expected to reach 8 billion on November 15th, the United Nations has forecast, with India set to overtake China as the world's most populous country next year. So this is interesting. The report forecast to reach says uh, it's going to be 8.5 billion in 2030, 9.7 billion in 2050. Okay, okay. So um, more than half the rise forecast in the world's population in the coming decades will be concentrated in just eight countries. I'm going to list them right now. Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines, and Tanzania. Now, I just want to bring it to our audience's attention of the Deagle forecast. I'm going to be careful with what I say about this because this is a YouTube public video, but look that up and just keep in mind what forecast it predicts for what year. And then think about what we have been experiencing with certain beep boops and medical experiments. Voluntary medical experiments, mind you. But anyway, let's continue. Uh, so this is from CNN from July 6th. After a string of Supreme Court setbacks, Democrats wonder whether Biden White House is capable of urgency moment demands. So this article is mentioning Deborah Messing. Deborah Messing, the former Will and Grace star, was among dozens of celebrity Democratic supporters and activists who joined a call with White House aides last Monday to discuss the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Uh -huh. So... Messing said, you know what, sorry, I'm going to go to this uh, previous sentence here. The mood was fatalistic, according to three people on the call, which was also co-organized by the, advoc the advocacy group Build Back Better Together. Build Back Better Together, the advocacy group. Okay, so that's really the only reason why we're looking at this article from CNN. because. For those of you that may know, Build Back Better was the slogan that we heard all around the world when the, uh, when the world governments were pushing the pandemic recovery plans, Build Back Better. But this advocacy group is called Build Back Better Together. Okay. And they want urgent action by the White House. Okay. Keep that in mind. So let's just take a look here at Building Back Better building back together the organization. We're on a mission to build a better America. So the mission statement, quote, by building winning coalitions, building back together advances the policy agenda of the Biden-Harris administration and effectively communicates the positive impacts of these policies to the American people. Okay, so I'm not saying that the... Uh, White House administration is literally taking their policy agenda from the United Nations and the World Economic Forum, 
but it's the exact same slogan that the World Economic Forum is using. So, and I've, I've gone deep into this on uh, the Patreon side on Dose of Reality. So please subscribe to the Patreon to get full access to all of those, the, the hours and hours of content that we have. Um, and I did go deep into the Build Back, to Build Back Better, World Economic Forum and all that. We'll probably be doing this on the public side soon as well because we do want the public audience to make sure that they're not experiencing uh, FOMO, the fear of missing out too much, but we also encourage everybody to subscribe to our Patreon. Now, uh, we're continuing here uh, with some more geopolitical stuff. And this is uh, from RT News, July 4th. Uzbekistan government concedes to the protesters' demands after deadly riots. So the Central Asian country has dropped a controversial amendment to its constitution. So Uzbekistan has scrapped the idea of revoking the autonomy of the northwestern region of Karakal, Pakistan, after deadly riots broke out there on Friday. Right. So this is just one of the many examples of countries all around the world where the people are revolting. And, you know, it's thanks to sites like Al Jazeera and RT News that are actually talking about this stuff. Of course, we know that it's being slanted from the perspective of the Russian government and whoever funds the Al Jazeera news outlet, but at least we get to see these other perspectives of what's going on in the world. So very interesting because we looked in previous stories, we looked at Ecuador, uh, we've looked at, well, actually, we're going to be ending the series today looking at Sri Lanka, but just another situation where these uh, people of Uzbekistan, just like the people of Kazakhstan, they they basically uh, revolted against their government. And interestingly, though, we're not seeing any follow-ups to what went on in Kazakhstan. And that is a great reminder because I'm going to specifically uh, look into that for our, the next Kraken. So thank you for letting me think out loud here and for still being with me on this journey of reporting the news. Next up, this is from Al Jazeera. Uber lobbied politicians broke laws in global push. The company received assistance from politicians, including French President Emmanuel Macron, according to newspaper reports. Interesting. So Uber Technologies Incorporated attempted to lobby politicians and flouted laws as part of efforts to expand globally from 2013 to 2017, according to newspaper reports based on leaked documents. Well, so uh, it's interesting that uh, they tried to lobby politicians and lobbying is essentially legal bribery, right? You're allowed to pay politicians off as a corporation to say that I'm going to give you money for your campaign so that you put legislation in place that favors my corporation. And Uber tried to do that. So is there really any, you know, are they any different than any oil company, any gas company? No. But does that mean that what, it, what they're doing is right? No. But it's just interesting that it's Uber because it was such a big name and people seemed to really support it and like the direction it was going. But 
anyway, we're not going to go too deep into that, but very interesting that Macron is directly involved with this leaked report on Uber. And there were actually anti-Uber protests in Paris and other European cities in 2016. Interesting. I wonder how the people feel about their president being involved with that. We'll see, France. We'll see. Okay, so we're getting to one of our final articles regarding the uh, world orders. Whether it's the new world order, the old world order, east or the west, this one is specifically from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. The IMF sounds a global economic alarm from July 9th. Worldwide recession cannot be ruled out, the institution warns. The head of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva, said on Wednesday that the outlook for the global economy had darkened significantly since April. She told Reuters that a global recession next year could not be ruled out given the elevated risks. The quote is, it's going to be a tough 22, but maybe even a tougher 2023. Oh, 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 I mean, I don't mean to to laugh here, but it's just like, oh, yeah, you don't say. Now, interesting to look at the image chosen here is a tidal wave with people simply just looking and watching the wave come. That's a telling image right there. Next up, from July 11th, we're going to CNN. China crushes mass protest by bank depositors demanding their life savings back. Oh, interesting. Chinese authorities on Sunday violently dispersed a peaceful protest by hundreds of depositors who sought in vain to demand their life savings back from banks that have run into a deepening cash crisis. Since April, four rural banks in China's central Henan province have frozen millions of dollars worth of deposits, threatening the livelihood of hundreds of thousands of customers in an economy already battered by draconian COVID lockdowns. Now, how different is this from what went on in Canada during the Freedom Convoy protests? And what would happen if the average person, and I'm sure that Dave has talked about this on the show before, but if the, if just a certain percent, 15 to 30% of all people go to the bank to take out their savings. What would that do to the financial system? And let's keep in mind too, that Canada just experienced this financial institution power outage where you could not send an e-transfer. You could not use your debit card. So interesting timing that this is going on in China same time that Canada's going on over here. Next article. Now, this is, okay, kind of a funny one where we see that the, their China was uh, draconian lockdowns and uh, violent uh, squashing protests because from Al Jazeera, China says Asian nations should avoid being used as chess pieces. China's top diplomat says Southeast Asia should be insulated against geopolitical calculations as great power rivalry intensifies. China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, has said that Southeast Asian nations should avoid being used as chess pieces in major power rivalries, 
how often we talk about this all the time that it's all a proxy war it's all chess moves you, they move this over here then you move that over there you support this country over here you invade that country over there so interesting that china is saying uh that uh the quote is we should insulate this region from geopolitical calculations and the trap of the law of the jungle from being used as chess pieces in major power rivalry and from coercion, he said, speaking through a translator. The future of our region should be in our own hands. Now, of course, to play the other side of it, well, clearly China does not want the West to interfere so that China can control that region, obviously. Is that well within the right? Well, they, that region should have to deal with that themselves. And, you know, it's just interesting that they're using these uh, terms. And, well, you know what? Let them, you know, let them figure it out. Let them figure it out for themselves. That's, that's how I feel about it. I'm relatively anti-interventionist, actually pretty strongly anti-interventionist. And I know that that's not going to sit well with a lot of people, but I, yeah, I won't go too deep into it, but feel free to comment, ask a question, and, and I'll respond. I'll engage with you for sure. Next up, from CTV News, alleged Chinese police database hacks leaks of 1 billion people of data. Wow. So from July 5th, hackers claim to have obtained a trove of data on 1 billion Chinese from a Shanghai police database in a leak that, if confirmed, could be one of the largest data breaches in history. Wow. Yeah, no doubt. The data purposely includes information from the Shanghai National Police Database, including names, addresses, national identification numbers, and mobile phone numbers, as well as case details. Wow. Okay, that is huge. That is a big leak. And that's it. So next up, <laughs> we're looking at an, an open letter from George Soros posted on the projectsyndicate.org, which is he, he funds it and, and runs this website. So the, it is from George Soros himself, July 4th. The headline, US democracy under concerted attack. The American public has been alarmed and aroused by the US Supreme Court's growing extremism, but voters need to recognize the court's radical majority for what it is, part of a carefully laid plan to turn the US into a repressive regime. So remember, this is George Soros saying this. And just interesting too, right on the side here, if you can see the visual featured, the next article, Rethinking the Global Order from July 4th. Wow. Okay, interesting. But let's see if I can find the specific one I wanted to highlight here. Um, George Soros says that from abroad, the U.S. is threatened by repressive regimes led by Xi Jinping in China and Vladimir Putin's Russia, who want to impose an autocratic form of government on the world. But the threat of the U.S. from the domestic enemies of democracy is even greater. They include the current Supreme Court, which is dominated by far-right extremists, and Donald Trump's Republican Party, which placed those extremists on the court. Well, what qualifies the majority of the court as extremists. It is not merely their decision to overturn, to overturn Roe versus Wade, the landmark 1973 case that recognized a woman's right to choose whether to give birth. What qualifies them as extremists is the arguments they use to justify their decision 
and the indications they gave of how far they might be willing to go in carrying out those arguments. Okay, well, we're, just, we're gonna end it there and not go too, too, too much deeper into this, but interesting is that George Soros is writing these public articles and he's kind of been one of the conspiracy conspiracy theorists, you know, go-to guy when they're talking about who runs the world and the global octopus and all that. And here we have article from him. So just to for some context as well, George Soros is chairman of Soros Fund Management and the Open Society Foundations. He's a pioneer of the hedge fund industry. He's the author of many books, including The Alchemy of Finance, The New Paradigm for Financial Markets, The Credit Crisis of 2008 and What It Means, The Tragedy of the European Union, Disintegration or Revival, and his most recent book is In Defense of Open Society. Yeah, no further comment needed. That's it. Please do your own homework and look into them, or you can request and we will do the episodes and the research for you. Okay, so that was the end of the geopolitical segment here. And I'm probably at about 45 minutes into the segment. Uh, into the overall program. Thank you again so much for being here with me. I'm having a lot of fun. I hope you are too. And now we're going to get into the next five articles, our COVID articles. It's going to, uh, the remainder is COVID articles, then some Canada, and then the Think Globally Act Locally segment featuring a case study looking to Sri Lanka. Okay, so let's continue. New coronavirus mutant raises concerns in India and beyond. This is from July 11th. The quickly changing coronavirus has spawned yet another super contagious Omicron mutant that's worrying scientists as it, as it gains ground in India and pops up in numerous other countries, including the US. Scientists say the variant called BA.2.75 may be able to spread rapidly and get around immunity from vaccines and previous infection. It's unclear whether it could cause more serious disease than other Omicron variants, including the globally prominent BA5. Okay, well, I mean, what really can we say? Um, the experts still say the vaccines of boosters are the best defense against severe COVID-19. And in the fall, it's likely the US will see updated formulations of the vaccine being developed that target more recent Omicron strain. Um, right, right. Well, again, just being very careful with, I, with what I say, I'm just reading straight from the article and hopefully we can read between the lines when we discuss certain topics and kind of communicate with some like wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of things. But I'm gonna be connecting that article talking about a mutant strain in India to this from 2021, May 24th. Now, I'm sure that the Gen Z audience will recall when this was a really big deal in the news. So the article is, they recovered from COVID only to die of a black fungus. What we know about the disease sweeping India. So <laughs> we probably covered this more on the Patreon side because of its sensitivity, but this from 2021. In early May, doctors in India begin began raising the alarm about a rise in mucormycosis, mucormycosis, a rare and potentially deadly infection also known as black fungus. 
many of those being infected are coronavirus patients or those who have recently recovered from COVID-19, whose immune systems have been weakened by the virus or who have underlying conditions. Now, does this, did the, remember when the black fungus, remember the black goo? And that's really all I wanna say. I'm not gonna go deeper into it, but just keep that in mind. Um, yeah, that's all we're gonna get into, but uh, yeah, a little weird. Um, okay, so this is from July 8th, 2022 from the National Pulse. The headline, with, this is an exclusive story, uh, headline, World Economic Forum Anti-Corruption Champion and Pfizer Director and Router's CEO. Conflicted much? Jim Smith, whose concurrent roles as Pfizer board members and Reuters CEO appear to pose a conflict of interest, serves as a board member of the World Economic Forum's anti-corruption initiative. Okay, this is a very big one. And uh, I, you know, I'm, ju I'm just reading an article here. Um, but I do actually want to make reference to our dose of reality on the Patreon side, where we actually explore uh, the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, the gatekeepers of the information, where uh, Reuters is absolutely involved, same with DuckDuckGo, same with Google, same with Wikipedia, about keeping the information uh, kind of constrained and tight knit so that we see that this is the information that they want the, that they want us to read. So is it a conflict of interest that Jim Smith has a leading role with the World Economic Forums partnering against corruption as well? Ha uh, he's got a role on Pfizer's board as well as Reuters. So Basically, the fact checkers, who's fact checking the fact checkers? Um, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, hopefully that this is still mainstream enough that we're just bringing this to people's attention. This is conspiracy. This is, you know, it is right here. So we do have to look into Jim Smith. Okay, so we're continuing on with our COVID segment and from July 6th, this is about Canada. Ontario's seventh wave of COVID is here. Top doctor, top doctor confirms amid exponential growth. Right, uh, so Ontario has officially entered its seventh wave of COVID-19, driven this time by the Omicron BA5 subvariant, the province's top doctor confirms. Sadly, yes, we're in another wave. Dr. Kieran Moore, the province's chief medical officer, told CBC News Wednesday. Right. Um, well, I'm just going to reference the last Kraken where we looked at two articles from the Jerusalem Post in Israel, where the first article is asking about the efficacy of the fourth booster of the jab. And then right under it, talking about the sixth wave being the deadliest. So. Israel's in the sixth wave. Ontario here is on their seventh wave. British Columbia, a province in Canada, is on their third or fourth wave. Manitoba just had their fourth wave. 
why so many different waves? Why aren't we all on the same waves collectively? I'm sure that we're supposed to just trust the experts in the science and not ask questions. So we're gonna just end that one there. Uh, we're gonna continue on with Ontario woman enduring effects of long COVID begins process for medically assisted death. Okay, so I'm also gonna be careful with what I say here, but essentially, we're just connecting the assisted death movement with long COVID. Also remember the Deagle forecast of population decreases. And remember the Georgia Guidestones, one of the main things that they said on those Guidestones of how many people they wanted on the planet. So I'll just read you that the, the woman in the article is quoted as saying, my choices are basically to die slowly and painfully or quickly. Those are the options that are left. Wow, depressing. So yeah, um, yeah, we're just gonna leave that there. Uh, okay, so now we're gonna do a bit of the Canadian segment and here we have uh, still, and keep in mind the topic of emergency preparedness, because the article says, Champagne directs major telecoms to come up with agreement on future outages. Canada's industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, said he has tasked Canada's major telecommunications networks with establishing a formal agreement to mitigate the damage of future outages. Following a closed-door meeting with the CEO of Rogers and the heads of other telecommunications service provider on Monday, Champagne told reporters he'd given the group 60 days to consider emergency roaming, mutual assistance during outages, and building out a communication protocol to better inform the public and authorities of any emergencies. Champagne said the teleconference it's a first step to tackle the resiliency and reliability of the sector. The Rogers outage began early Friday morning and lasted 15 hours, impacting millions of households and businesses. It also hampered customers' ability to use emergency services like calling 911. Right. So, again, tie this into the EU creating a new bunker. Um, the Buckingham Palace going through some renovations. And here we have this situation in Canada where Rogers owns the big share of the market and you could not send financial transactions to one another. You couldn't use your debit card in a lot of places. You couldn't call 911. And now they're talking about, okay, what else do we do in case of emergencies? Are they indicating something? Next up in Canada, we have the Freedom Convoy organizer, Tamara Litch, set to have a bail hearing. Now, uh, the Crown is seeking to revoke bail for Tamara Leach, a leader of the Freedom Convoy, after she appeared alongside a fellow organizer in an alleged breach of her conditions. She was charged in February with mischief, obstructing police, counseling others to commit mischief, and intimidation for her role in the massive protests against COVID-19 restrictions at gridlock downtown Ottawa for more than three weeks. Right, 
So, well, all I can say is yay democracy. We're gonna just, yep, that's it. Just go on. Okay, next up uh, from Canada again, court martial planned for soldier who criticized vaccine mandate led march to Ottawa. This is from July 5th. The Canadian soldier who recently led a protest march to Ottawa is now facing a court martial for having spoken out against the federal government's COVID-19 vaccine requirements while wearing his uniform. If you remember, I was wondering, is he gonna be hero or is he gonna be a traitor? Well, clearly uh, they want him to be a traitor. So yeah, gay democracy, right? Okay, so this is the little uh, interesting. I wonder, is this article not going to be found? Because I pulled this up right before doing the uh, putting all of these together. But so this article is saying that the page cannot be found. I wonder. So this is in real time. The audience is seeing that this article that I tried to pull up is unable to be shown. So this article was actually going to be exploring how the Defen Bunker, which is a Canadian milit uh, a, a, a deep underground military base created by the Defen Baker government of Canada in about the late 1950s, I believe, is being refurbished. They're investing money to reinvigorate the Defen Bunker. So this is a place for politicians and elites to go hide in case there is a nuclear attack. So with these articles talking about emergency preparedness, one term that we need to know is continuity of government. So that's essentially what happens when the government isn't really in power and there's an emergency. How do they continue having their power? So very interesting that this article was removed as I am doing this report. Very interesting. Okay, so that was it for the regular Kraken. But I'm going to give you a bit of a bonus content here for these next five articles. So this is inspired by uh, the segment that I was doing where we're calling it Think Globally Acting Locally. So we're using a case study of one nation state and exploring how tentacles of the global octopus have infiltrated this uh, certain nation state. And in this example, we're using Sri Lanka. So what uh, we're going to be looking at is uh, first up the article from July 5th, Sri Lanka from Al Jazeera. So Sri Lanka's Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe says, I can turn around Sri Lanka's economy. And Sri Lanka's newly appointed prime minister says it will take one and a half years to stabilize the crisis hit economy. Now, I took this article July 5th and I made the comment, I hope this is true. That's what I honestly, genuinely was thinking when I read this article. He says that he is confident he can turn the economy around, but cautioned it will take 18 months before the stability returns. So he says the year 2023 is going to be difficult, but by 2024, things should pick up. Now, the year 2023 being difficult, is that what the IMF president also said? That 2023 is going to be difficult, but 
She didn't say anything about 2024, but maybe there's a consistent, almost lockstep geopolitical consensus of the forecasting here. But so keep in mind that this leader, 73 year old at the time, he became the prime minister for the sixth time in May and he took up the job in extraordinary measures. Okay, okay, so keep this in mind. Next up in the Sri Lanka stories. Sri Lanka's political chaos persists as crisis talks go on. So uh, this is from July 11th. A weekend of political chaos in Sri Lanka stretched into Monday with opposition leaders yet to agree on replacements for embattled president Gotabaya Rajapaksa and his prime minister whose residences remain occupied by protesters angered over the country's economic collapse. So crowds of demonstrators overran Raja Pax's home, his seaside office, and the official residence of Prime Minister Renil Wikre Mesingi on Saturday and demanded they step down in the most dramatic day of the three-month crisis. Leaders of two opposition parties held talks Monday but could not agree on their choices for president and prime minister. Okay, so I'm just going to read you one more thing here. Corruption and mismanagement has left the island nation laden with debt, unable to pay for imports of food, fuel, medicine, and other necessities, causing widespread shortages and despair among its 22 million people. The country is seeking help from neighboring India and China and from the International Monetary Fund. Right. So we're just going to keep that there. Yes, I am scrolling through this article just to see if there's something that I do want to bring up. Um, I guess what I can say from this article is that uh, Wikra Masinge had been part of crucial talks with the IMF for a bailout program and with the World Food Program to prepare for a predicted food crisis. The government must submit a plan on debt sustainability to the IMF in August before reaching an agreement. Okay, okay. So you've got the IMF, World Bank, predicted food crisis. Political leaders getting kicked out and the citizens revolting. And next up, Sri Lanka president's brother stopped from flying out amid crisis. Officials say they prevented ex-finance minister Basil Rajapaksa from flying out of the country as anger rises against the powerful family. Okay. Sri Lankan immigration officials said they have prevented the president's brother and former finance minister Basil Rajapaksa from flying out of the country. The Sri Lankan Immigration and Emigration Officers Association on Tuesday said its members declined to serve Basil Rajapaksa at the VIP departure lounge of the Colombo airport. Wow. Okay, okay. So keep that in mind. The citizens are revolting against the powerful family that's running the show. The prime minister was just elected for the sixth time, who is directly involved with, with being responsible for constructing the IMF bailout package. And I'm gonna connect that to the Argentinian finance minister who resigned, who was also responsible for structuring a bailout plan in coordination with the International Monetary Fund. How about that? As Argentina wanted to reach out and join BRICS, if you remember that. So the second last story for the day, Sri Lanka protesters reject an all-party government. They want Raja Paxas out. Protesters say no to an all-party government being discussed by politicians, saying it will be 
a way for the Rajapaksa cartel to remain in power. Tens of thousands of Sri Lankan protesters have been occupying the president's house, the presidential secretariat, and the prime minister's official residence in growing anger over the island nation's unprecedented economic crisis. Right, right. Um, yeah, so just very clear that the citizens of Sri Lanka are fed up. They're pissed off. They're done with it. They don't want this cartel, the same family, to be controlling things. Good for them. Okay. So we're moving on. Well, actually, I'm just going to read you this one last phrase from this article. Um, is that one person quoted in the article says that the protest leaders strongly oppose an all-party government, a move in her view for the Rajapaksa cartel to control the government from behind the scenes. So that essentially is a tentacle of the global octopus trying to control a country through financial means of the International Monetary Fund. But the people say no. Right. You know what? And for good measure, here are the demands, the six demands of the protest leaders. That the president immediately resign. The prime minister and his government should also quit immediately. An interim government should be established for a max period of one year. A new constitution that endorsed people's sovereignty be established through a referendum, hopefully within a year. President's executive powers should be reduced and democratic institutions strengthened until the new constitution is drafted. And the fundamental objective of the interim government should be to implement the above proposals. Okay, okay, right on. So. We're moving on to the final article of the day. And this was brought to my attention from Disclose TV. Thank you very much. This article was actually removed from the website of the World Economic Forum. This was published in 2018, written by the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka and the officer of the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka at the time. So this is using the Wayback Machine to find this article. The Sri Lanka Prime Minister said, this is how I will make my country rich by 2025. No joke that this actually happened. This is really an article published by him. And we just looked at the context happening right now in Sri Lanka. So this is just too perfect to not pay attention to people. And thank you so much for allowing my excitement to show in this segment, but I find this absolutely incredible. And I'm not going to read you the actual article from the prime minister. I'm simply telling you that they had a vision 2025 for Sri Lanka. And we just looked at how <laughs> a week ago he said that here's how I'm going to make the country good by 2025. It's going to be rough next year, but the next year is going to be even rougher, and then it'll be good. Just like the IMF leader said about the global economy. But thank you for bearing with me. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And so there we have it for today. That was uh, Generation Z's Kraken Report. My name is Riel. Today is uh, July 12th, 2022. I hope you involved. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this segment, and really looking forward to the feedback, the comments. Um, not sure if it's going to be me or Dave doing the next one, but we're going to definitely do what we can to have consistent reporting for everybody. And hope you all enjoyed it. 
uh, see you all very soon. Thank you very much.